On September 3rd, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration quietly issued an announcement in the Federal Register. It didn't catch much attention, but it is destined to have a profound impact on retaliation claims under the OSH Act. We're gonna talk about the retaliation claim changes to the OSH Act uh, under this new interpretation or revised interpretation on this, the September 22nd, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030 with Monish Raff. Hello, everyone. I'm Monish Rath, and I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. I am an occupational safety and health law attorney. Uh, I've been engaged in this uh, area of law for almost all of my 26 years of practice. And I, I got to say, I love it today as much as I did when I first began. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Taylor Johnson, who will be joining us by audio. Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, uh, important and central part of our OSHA law team here at Keller and Heckman. A pleasure to be here as always, Manish. Well, Taylor, we've got an important topic today. All of the topics that we've covered in the past 98 episodes over the past eight years have been libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Uh, many of them are still very instructive, very informative, very relevant to the in-house counsel or safety and health professional uh, in corporate life. And that goes to some of the topics we covered eight years ago and some of the topics we've covered earlier this year. So I encourage our attendees to, when they get the spare time, check them out. They're all still on our website. And the next invitation you get, please remember, as we've asked many times before, to forward the invitation for future OSHA 3030s onto others within your team or at other organizations who are responsible for either in-house counsel or safety and health professionals uh, who, who could benefit from the kind of information that we, we put on every month uh, without interruption for, for uh, as a complimentary service to clients and friends of the firm. Okay, with that said, Taylor, why don't we start by talking about what we're gonna talk about today. Absolutely. And as you alluded to earlier, uh, we've got a great agenda here today. Um, first, we're going to provide an overview of the relevant uh, provision of the OSH Act uh, that deals with retaliation. Uh, then we'll launch into a review of OSHA's prior uh, retaliation test. Um, we're going to unpack the term but for causation. Um, it's a term that we will be, Manish and I will be mentioning multiple times throughout the program. And so we wanted to just make sure that, um, you know, that the, that the listeners were clear on what that means. Uh, we'll provide an analysis of OSHA's new test, um, as Manish mentioned, which came out uh, recently in the Federal Register. And we're going to uh, examine Supreme Court precedent. So sort of the why, um, you know, OSHA is going this way with the new test and, and the support that they found for this, um, this change in Supreme Court precedent. And as always, uh, we're going to end with some practical takeaways here for employers. And then um, after the program, uh, we'll have our new section uh, off the record. Uh, it's a conversation for live participants only. And uh, we actually have a, a bunch of great questions today um, from listeners. And we'll read those live on the air. And um, you know, Manish, Manish and I will provide some feedback. So make sure you, uh, you stick around for that. That's right. Some of our longest standing listeners have contributed questions. And some of our more recent additions to the Ocean 3030 community have pre-submitted some questions. So we're thankful to all of you who sent us questions ahead of time. Uh, and to be clear, this program is republished as a podcast, and it's also posted on YouTube with the slides and the video. 
so, so that is the recorded section of this program. But, but at the end, Taylor, as you said, we'll go off the record, no recordings, and just have a live webinar exchange with our community members who want to stick around. And we'll address those questions, plus any others that people want to write in using the chat function. We'll just stick around for 10 minutes, so we might not have time for every question, but we'll, we'll certainly try to tackle some of the good ones. And uh, we can try and deal with some of the others offline if, if necessary. So why don't we go and get into it? Uh, to start off with, the Occupational Safety and Health Act is where retaliation law under uh, the OSH Act uh, arises. It is written into the act, the original act from 1970 in section 11C of the act. And essentially 11C protects employees from being retaliated against uh, if they're, they have engaged in any of the protected activities listed in the act, which includes filing a complaint, causing an investigation, testifying or participating as a witness in an investigation, or in any way exercising a right related to the OSH Act. And that last one has largely been interpreted to include refusal to work, provided that the refusal is reasonable and based on a bona fide and reasonable belief in imminent danger to safety or health uh, from pursuing a particular task. Uh, so, so participating in a complaint or an investigation, filing a complaint internally or externally, or exercising a right, including the right to refuse to engage in imminently unsafe uh, uh, activities or tasks uh, constitute protected activities for the purposes of Section 11C of the Act. So let's talk about the prior test, the test before September 3rd. Really what the law said, again, comes from 11C of the Act. But then the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in adding more uh, explanation to the statutory language had published an interpretation. A few different uh, locations, but primarily we see the, uh, the primary source for interpretation coming uh, in a regulation, 1977.6b. And what the agency says in that reg is that for an employee to raise a complaint of retaliation and for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration when evaluating that complaint to find a uh, probable cause that retaliation occurred there are two ways that that, that, can, uh, that that a case for retaliation can be established. First, and then remember, this is the old rule. First, the agency may find probable cause that the motive for an employer to take an adverse action against an employee uh, included the protected activity as a substantial reason for the adverse activity, the adverse action. Or, Second, the agency could find probable cause that the employer uh, had terminated the employee because of the protected activity and that the adverse action would not have taken place but for the existence of that protected activity by that employee. Here, I suppose it's important to point out what an adverse action or what the term means. In general employment law or OSHA law, an adverse action can be uh, any, anything that uh, includes termination, failure to promote a demotion, uh, penalties of any kind that affect terms or conditions of, of employment, 
such as fi fines or penalties or suspension. Uh, disciplinary action that could have a ultimate effect on compensation could also count as an adverse action. Okay, so that's an adverse action. And those are the two ways that, that OSHA could establish alternatively the, that there's probable cause that there was a retaliation, uh, an act of retaliation, either that the adverse action that the employer took was based in, uh, as a, a, one of the substantial reasons for it was, was the protected activity, or that the adverse action would not have occurred or taken place, but for the protected activity. This first one, the substantial reason test, was a significantly lower bar for the agency to establish probable cause. An employee did not need to present evidence that the primary or sole reason for an adverse action was the employee's protected activity. They, they could merely supply sufficient evidence that amongst many reasons, one of the substantial reasons was a retaliatory motive. Uh, we've put an interesting uh, chart on the slides here. And so for those of you who are listening by podcast later on, I should just point out that the effect of this is to identify the over 20 different statutes that OSHA adjudicates retaliation claims for, uh, including the Occupational Safety and Health Act itself. Uh, and the, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the retaliation claims that are filed every year are claims under the Occupational Safety and Health Act. But there's others, including Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, food safety, et cetera. And uh, the number has been essentially, uh, the proportions between all these statutes has been essentially stable with some minor minor uh, adjustments here or there. So that we talked about substantial, uh, the substantial reason for uh, termination as a motivating reason for termination. Taylor, why don't we talk about but for causation? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a test that's used in tort and criminal law, as we note. Um, and essentially, you know, the way to think about this is, but for the protected activity. Um, so but for some of those activities that Monish listed earlier, um, you know, the complaint, participating in investigation, testifying. So if not for that activity, uh, would the employer have carried out the adverse action? So the, the firing or the discrimination. So in the context of retaliation claims, the employee must prove that but for the existence of the protected activity, the adverse action would not have occurred. Um, so can it, can it stand on its own? If you remove any other reasoning, is the actual reason that the employee is being either discriminated or discharged from their job because of this protected activity. Um, so that's a, you know, a way to think about but for causation. Um, you know, uh, for those listening, we have a picture of dominoes here, you know, a, a way to sort of unpack this that I, I remember from law school actually is, uh, you know, but for the falling of the first domino, would the second domino fall? And so that's just sort of a way to unpack, you know, but for causation. And as Manish mentioned earlier, uh, this is a higher bar than the substantial reason test. Um, so, it's, um, it's, it's harder to prove um, the, in, in, in a sense um, in terms of, you know, an employee bringing these claims. Um, and so that's something that we'll see, uh, you know, what the impact of this is moving forward. But we just wanted to note that certainly, um, you know, more difficult than just a substantial reason um, that, that the adverse action occurred. That's right, Taylor. And perhaps, one, and this is maybe evident already, uh, but one of the reasons it's harder to prove is because an employer may present the defense that forget about his, the employee's evidence that this was retaliatorily motivated. 
his own performance or his or her own performance or conduct or a specific safety and health violation, et cetera, was the reason we would have terminated. And we would have terminated that employee regardless of whether or not there was also a retaliatory motive because this violation of a safety and health rule or uh, poor performance or, or conduct was sufficient enough to terminate objectively speaking. So as long as an employer can establish that under a but-for causation, you can't, uh, an employee can no longer make a but-for case because even with or without the retaliatory motive, the employee would have been terminated. So you can't say, but for the, the protected activity, the employee would not have been terminated. Okay, with that said, let's talk about three, a series of three cases that OSHA cited to, at least two of them are considered landmark cases uh, in the field of employment law. One of, is, one of them is Gross versus FBL Financial Services. Gross versus FBL Financial Services is a, an Age Discrimination Act. So it was raised under the ADEA, the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. And the employee brought a retaliation claim after having raised concerns about age discrimination. Uh, I apologize, raised an age discrimination claim itself in Gross. And this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, when you look at whether or not to use the substantial reason test, whether or not age was a substantial reason in the adverse action, or use a but-for causation uh, test, meaning but-for age, the adverse action would not have occurred, we believe that the, we have to look at the statutory language in the ADEA. And the ADEA says that it prohibits discrimination because of age. And the term because of is not the same as you'd find in Title VII, which prohibits discrimination for disparate treatment, disparate impact, a host of reasons. Disparate impact cases are essentially uh, strict liability and uh, the, the disparate treatment cases, well, although you have to show uh, discriminatory motive, that could be a, a motive that contributed to a decision. But the Age Discrimination and Employment Act used the term because of age, must not take an adverse action because of age. And for that reason, the Supreme Court held that this term because of is more akin to but for. And thus we believe that the intent of Congress in enacting the Age Discrimination and Employment Act was that an employer is prohibited from taking an adverse action uh, because of age, meaning that but for age, the adverse action would not have occurred. And the burden of persuasion belongs to the employee to meet that but for causation test. Fast forward, maybe about seven years to, to Nasser, a physician who brought a case against the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Now, remember what I said, Title VII's discrimination, disparate treatment, and disparate impact, disparate treatment claims uh, don't have a but-for causation, and they have slightly different language built into that portion of the statute. So when Nasser brings a claim against University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center uh, for retaliation, the Supreme Court once again must evaluate whether or not to use the because of standard for determining motive or but for standard. And the retaliation language, anti-retaliation language in Title VII uses the term because of the protected activity, which is more akin to the language you find in Gross versus FBL and the ADEA. Thus, the Supreme Court said, 
whereas discrimination claims under Title VII use a because of, uh, use a, a substantial reason test, retaliation claims under Title VII use a but for causation test. And thus the court will find that a plaintiff has failed to make their case. And in the Nasser case, I believe that's exactly what happened. Unless they can establish that, but for their protected activity, they were, uh, the adverse action would not have occurred. Okay, Nasser was a landmark case when it came out. Uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, another Title VII case uh, where the court cited to Nasser, giving us further support for the belief that Gross and Nasser are sound law by the time the Occupational Safety and Health Administration arrives at revising its own interpretation uh, in, in 1977.6p. Taylor, why don't we talk about the, the revision? Sure, absolutely. Um, so it came out in September 3rd, Federal Register Notice. Um, and the main thing here is the, the substantial reason test uh, was removed um, from this, you know, sort of two-pronged causation test that Manish touched on earlier. Um, so when you remove that, what you're left with is the but-for causation test uh, that Manish was just talking about that was, you know, the subject of the Supreme Court cases. So the employee now must show that but-for the protected activity, the employee would not have suffered the adverse action. Um, so again, you know, sort of striking that substantial reason test um, from what, what OSHA will we'll look at here. And the employee's engagement in the protected activity, and, and this is an important point that Manish will touch on in a bit here, uh, it does not need to be the sole consideration for the adverse action. So you're allowed to have more than one factor, more than one thing that you're considering here. Um, but again, it, we need to, you know, the employee needs to show that but for this activity, um, you know, no adverse action would have occurred. That's interesting. So remember that in the old standard, there were two ways that an employee could establish retaliation. One was that there was a, that their protected activity was a substantial reason in the employer's decision to take an adverse action. And the other was uh, that they can say, but for the protected activity, the adverse action would not have taken place. So what OSHA has done on September 3rd is they struck the first one and said, now an employee must show that, but for their protected activity, the adverse action would not have occurred. That what you're saying, Taylor, is, is a fair point the agency did add, well, you could, you could uh, have a mixed motive. Right. And that means that an employer had multiple reasons for terminating someone, one of which was the protected activity the employee engaged in, which would be, an prohibited, uh, would be a prohibited basis for terminating. But the employee would have to show that there was a mixed motive and each one of those separate motives was a contributor without which the other motives would not have stood to lead to an adverse action. That's a tough one. I don't see mixed motive cases being successful. And I think OSHA's opinion may be a little bit out on a limb there. They, I think, wanted to salvage some of the uh, narrowing that they have caused by the September 3rd revision by saying you could still have mixed motive cases. But I, I frankly can't see that as easy to press for a plaintiff, for an employee. Uh, again, let me just say that slightly differently. An employee, in order to show a mixed motive case under a but-for analysis, would have to say, sure, sure, the employer had two reasons for terminating me, my poor performance and my protected activity. But if my protected activity were not one of the reasons they wanted to terminate me, my performance by itself would not have justified terminating me. That's how I think you establish a mixed motive uh, but for case. But I don't see how that's any different than a single motive but for case. He's essentially saying 
the performance argument was uh, a mere pretense. And uh, it's not a, a bona fide legitimate or sincerely held legitimate non-discriminatory reason, non-retaliatory reason. So, so they put that in there. And again, I think that that was maybe just to, to soften the blow of what I think the result of this is, which is substantial narrowing of the, of the standard for, for causation. Uh, one of the more interesting things about OSHA law compared to all other fields of workplace law is that uh, it, it doesn't have a preemption clause that, that covers a, a identical, a, a non-identical state law, uh, law if a state has opted out. There's no other scheme that I'm aware of quite like this where states can opt out and create a state plan uh, that's, that's been registered and approved by OSHA. But such as it is, there are 22 to 28 state plan states, depending on how you count them. Uh, so real quickly, I'll not get too far into this, but the, that marginal six states, they apply to municipal or state workers. But for, for at least 22 of the state plan states, uh, private employers are covered under the state OSHA regimen rather than the federal OSHA regimen. And so OSHA addresses how the revision to its causation standard affects state plan states. And Taylor, I thought it was interesting. They, they said that they acknowledge the states have to implement a new rule when OSHA implements a new rule, and that that new rule has to be at least as effective as the federal rule. However, they said that the states are not obligated to use the but-for standard if they're relying on state statutory language, which may be different from the federal statutory language. Well, I'd argue that if the state statutory language is identical to the federal language in 11C, that that is probably what they're going to have to do is, is treat this anti-retaliation provision as something that an employee can establish only using a but-for causation analysis. And the court also noted that states cannot further narrow the causation standard further, more narrowly than the but-for causation. Okay, so that's great. I'm not sure uh, any state had any prospect of doing so, but, uh, but I think the real important point in this provision of the announcement in the Federal Register is OSHA telling the state plan states, hey, you don't have to, you don't have to implement a but-for standard if uh, your state statutory language doesn't require it. Yep. Okay. This is an important area. Remember, I, I started off saying, I think this is going to have a profound impact on, on retaliation claims. Retaliation claims are uh, probably the fastest growing area of wrongful termination suits, not just under the OSHA Act, but generally speaking. Uh, and OSHA has been fully swamped for a number of years in their ability to effectively process and respond to, to retaliation claims. And in fact, that number was already meteoric uh, in its rise up to 2019, and then it just exploded during uh, the COVID period, where employees uh, were filing retaliation claims, essentially alleging either that they had refused to comply with certain practices because they felt like it was unsafe under the COVID uh, exposure environment, or they they claimed that they had actually complained about uh, inadequate COVID pro uh, mitigation protocol at the uh, place of employment. And after that, they were treated differently. And so OSHA was uh, swamped during this past 
what, 18 months to try and handle all of these new claims on top of the existing already large uh, baseline of retaliation cases. It's true that in any era, pre-COVID or post uh, during COVID, uh, that most retaliation claims are not do not result in a finding of merit. Uh, out of it, just taking 2012's data as representative, because that's easily procurable, uh, out of a, a, almost 3,000 retaliation claims, only 45 claims were found to have merit. Uh, in 2018, similar numbers, 44 were sent to the Department of Justice for further pro processing. Um, this is less than, oh, just off the top of my head, so only less than 3%, I'd say less than 2% of all cases. And uh, that, that's a very small percentage of cases that, that the agency finds to have merit or probable cause of merit, I should be more clear. Uh, so, so in light of this new revision, we will see a narrowing of the standard to but for causation. And I think that that fraction that the agency finds probable cause that there's merit will go even smaller in, into a, even a smaller direction or, or a lower percentage of all claims filed. Uh, so with that said, what are some practical takeaway items for employers in light of this development? Yeah, so I, I think the most important one is, is the first one that we have listed here. And that's that you know, 11C, this retaliation provision, it does not insulate an employee from being discharged for a legitimate reason. Um, so for employers, if, if you if you planned on firing an employee because, you know, for tardiness or, you know, uh, not getting along with coworkers, any any sort of legitimate reason, um, just because that employee has engaged in one of these protected activities, you know, prior they filed a complaint or they're currently testifying, that doesn't mean that just because that exists that you you can't fire the employee or you can't, you know, take one of the adverse actions that Manus described earlier. I think that's one of the big things here um, is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, we really wanted to let this person go, but, uh, you know, they filed that complaint, so we're not going to be able to move forward with that. So that's one of the things that we really wanted to stress here, um, as long as, again, you know, back to the but-for causation, it's not the reason, you know, they're, they're participating um, in, a, in, you know, testifying or filing a complaint isn't the reason why you're firing them. It's actually based, you know, in a legitimate cause. Yeah, and I think, uh, Taylor, that's one of the reasons why it's important if you have somebody who is invested in protections under 11C, to work with counsel if an adverse action is imminent to make sure that it's done properly Absolutely. and that there's a, a record demonstrating that this is a non-retaliatory motive supplying the employer's decision to, to go forward with that adverse action. Um, and for that reason, uh, as you note, it's important on the slide, you note that it's important to document all warnings, all performance problems, uh, any conduct, uh, misconduct uh, instances, uh, or instances of insubordination. And, and I, I think when you're talking about performance or conduct, uh, it's important to make sure that you do a cross-check of other cases similarly situated so that you're satisfied. And this is the part the council uh, should hopefully, good council should be rigorous in enforcing the analysis of, is to make sure that, that employees were similarly situated with similar performance problems or similar misconduct uh, warnings were not treated differently, that, that you're not terminating this employee or Zayla's just got warnings uh, or, or suspension or something like that. Uh, that. That analysis, I think, has to be fairly exhaustive before you're, for, a, for an employee who has 11C protections or believes they have 11C protections. 
because I think that that is, uh, that's where the action is in terms of being able to defend that this is, would fail a but-for causation analysis. Uh, safety and health violations, I think it's again, critical to document all safety and health violations. Uh, Taylor, as we say in the Kevin Heckman uh, OSHA law team, there's no such thing as a verbal warning. I believe every verbal warning needs to be followed up by the supervisor with a record in the supervisor's notes. They don't have to be handed to the employee, but the supervisor does have to make their own note that a verbal warning was given and that record has to go to file. And unless that record somehow makes it into the file, it does remain just verbal in nature. So all safety and health violations should be documented somehow, even if it's just in the supervisor's walkthrough notes. So once you have that record, again, the analysis has to be conducted as to whether or not employees who also engaged in similar safety and health violations were treated similarly. Was the adverse action treatment the same? Because that I think is the best way to neutralize any argument that, but for the protected activity, the adverse action wouldn't have occurred. Finally, I would say that the reason for the adverse action has to be clearly documented. And I am less concerned, although I do think it should be clearly communicated to the employee, I'm less concerned about that as documenting it, even if only for internal purposes, because that is going to be the record that the tribunal, whether it's the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, the ALJ, is going to test the employer's response by. And so, so if there's multiple conflicting bases for an adverse action, uh, they'll, they'll all be subjected to the same analysis as to whether or not the, that was reflective of the standard that the employer applied to non-protected employees. So these are the kind of critical analyses that have to be done carefully. And I'd prefer with your counsel that, that will help protect an employer when trying to do the right thing uh, where it involves an employee who may have protection from 11C type uh, adverse actions. Taylor, that's it for today's OSHA 3030, right on time, that's 30 minutes. Uh, more information about uh, occupational safety and health law developments can be found on our website, on our LinkedIn pages. Uh, this pro pro this uh, webinar will be republished as a podcast. Hopefully you've subscribed to the OSHA 3030 on your podcast app, uh, and we'll post it on YouTube as well with the slides and video image. And, uh, and remember to like or rate the program on your podcast app or on, on YouTube so that it is more easily searchable by others. And finally, I'll end the way I began, which is a request to forward on this invitation to at least three other people every time uh, who are responsible either as in-house counsel or safety and health professionals for compliance with uh, safety and health law uh, at your organization or at other organizations. Uh, we'll be back in one month, October 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. for the next episode of the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I want to uh, also point out that we have sister programs, the TOSCA 3030 and REACH 3030, and the next episode of those programs will be on October 20th at uh, 1 and 1.35, respectively, uh, Eastern time. And stay tuned to this channel to find out more information about the next scheduled FIFRA 3030. Thank you all uh, of our participants for participating this month. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.